you have your Bibles with you, turn them to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And if you need a Bible, there are Bibles in the back seats, or the seat backs, I guess that's the correct term, the seat back in front of you. Um, you can borrow one from there. Uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 15, and we're going to cover verses 10 through 35. This is part two uh, to a sermon entitled, A Consuming Fire. We go ahead and start by reading. It says, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and this lowing of oxen that I hear? Samuel said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you ate little, and you're, or though you are little, excuse me, I'm thinking about lunch already, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I fear the people and obey their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul, uh, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet Honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. 
Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother be childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of, of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord rejected that he, or excuse me, that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And that is the word of the Lord. Amen. All right, so there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, this whole focus this week has been on the holiness of God, or this week and last week, uh, the whole focus of this chapter, rather, has been the holiness of God. And there's a particular term that I brought to you last week, and I want to I start with that. Uh, last week, we discussed the reliability of God's word, or the reliability of God's holiness in dealing with both the Amalekites and also the Israelites here in this chapter. And I think it's important for us to uh, look at the uh, consistency of God's word and God's holiness throughout this chapter, and to be able to look at these two different situations and see how different they were, how God handled the Amalekites and how God handled uh, the Israelites. And within these two very different situations, God's holiness remains perfectly the same. And, and that, to me, that's, that's awesome, and that's what we point to as reliable. Uh, because to be reliable, it means that something is trustworthy or consistent, right? So, uh, you, you say somebody's reliable or I can depend on that person or you pick a reliable person because of their, their characteristics of being trustworthy and consistent. Well, when it comes to God and when we just try to describe God, I said last week it's hard to, for anything in our vocabulary to adequately describe who God is because how can you perfectly describe someone who is perfect? Uh, you know, it's, it's impossible for us. But the best that we can do is that when we say God is reliable or his holiness is reliable, uh, we can say that it is utterly trustworthy and or consistent to the utmost. There's nothing beyond what, there's nothing beyond God, his holiness or anything that he can do. And so when we describe God, that's what it means. He is perfection over perfection. And that means that all things that are associated with God, including his words and also his judgments are holy as he is holy. So as we're reading this chapter, it's important for us to remember that, right? Uh, you know, God is holy. He does no wrong. And uh, we have to come to grips with that whenever we see his sovereignty at work in this chapter. So that last week, we learned that there is no one who isn't deserving of God's wrath. And we use the Amalekites to learn that. God goes and tells Saul, you have to devote this uh, nation of, the, of Amalek to destruction. And he expected uh, Saul to, uh, to kill all, to destroy all. And we may sit there and look and say, well, wow, that's really, really mean. How can, how can uh, God do that? Well, we recognize that God uh, is holy, completely holy. And we as people, uh, including the Amalekites, are not holy. We are very sinful. And the Amalekites especially were wicked and unrepented people. They symbolize those who reject God and live life according to what is right in their own eyes. God's holiness would not and could not uh, let sin pass without due punishment. And that still stands true for us today. Uh, we stand before God guilty, 
right? Because God says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So a, a holy God cannot let sin go by. Because the Amalekites were wicked and God is holy, he was justified, justified in bringing about their destruction. It's going to be the same thing at the end of the age. Jesus talked about it in the New Testament. He says that the, in the last day, you know, there will be, uh, there will be weeping, uh, gnashing of teeth, all these different descriptions of that last day and that last judgment. And uh, no one's going to be able to stand before God and say, you have no right to do this because we're all going to be judged by the Lord. Uh, we're going to be judged by what we did in the body, the Bible says. And so we see this taking place here in chapter 15. The, but the one thing that we have to note is that verses 1 through 9, God is dealing with the Amalekites who were the enemies of God's people. That, that seems to be like a, that's a different story. These are, these are enemies of God. Therefore, they're the enemies of God's people. Now we look at verses 10 through 35, and now we see how God interacts with his own people. And still consistently does not let sin go by but he does deal with them differently and that's what we're going to look at today so I pray that God gives us wisdom to understand a conviction that stirs our hearts and also courage to respond as we should first thing I want to do is I want to exegete the passage that means to uncover or unpack the passage for you and so that we can gain some context uh, the first thing that we see is that this chapter at the end of the chapter from verses 10 through 35 it's about the Lord rejecting King Saul. Why? Well, he's rejecting King Saul for his continual disobedience. Uh, again, we see God deal with the sins of King Saul and the Israelites in our verses today. The holiness of God displayed in this passage, it teaches us that uh, whether you are God's enemy or not, he does not allow sin. And I think we can learn to appreciate that about God because if he did allow sin... <laughs> He would be inconsistent. There would be, what word would we be to go by? How would he judge correctly if he himself could not maintain perfect holiness? So as far as context goes, we need to understand that verses 7 through 9 of this chapter, that's where um, God tells Samuel to tell Saul uh, to go and, and fight against the Amalekites and to uh, basically devote them to destruction. This is what the Bible says. It says that, um, that Saul defeated the Amalekites and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. So we see right away that the, the, the command from God was to you go to the Amalekites and devote the whole nation to destruction, including uh, their animals, livestock, everything, everything you must destroy. Well, right away in verse 7, we see that uh, Saul kept Agag alive, who was the king of the Amalekites. But also Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So they didn't do exactly as the Lord said. And that's why the Lord is displeased with King Saul. The Lord told Saul to strike Amalek and devote to destructions all that they had. In verse 7, it says, do not spare them. That means do not let one go uh, alive. Instead of obeying the Lord's command, Agag was left alive and the best of the Amalekite livestock was spared. Now, well, I'll get there in a second, but one thing to think about, uh, once we get towards the end of this 
book, there's something interesting, and I've already brought it up a couple of times, but if you want to read ahead. Number one, um, Saul did not do his job in destroying the, uh, the Philistines uh, in an earlier battle. And then also, and, and so it was the Philistine army that came to finally attack Saul, and that was his doom. Him and his son Jonathan died in that battle. But also very interesting in that battle, he was, Saul was killed by uh, an Amalekite. He was sent to go and destroy them, and uh, since he did not destroy them, they, theologians think that there was an Amalekite mercenary or something that was with the army of the Philistines. And so you think about it, these are the two enemies that God sent Saul to go and destroy. He disobeyed the Lord, and it came back that those two enemies were part of Saul's death. They played a part in Saul's death. Very, very interesting to me, you know, about when we're disobedient, how it comes back on us. And we completely deserve it, too. But anyway, just, just something to, to think about before we, uh, we move on. But here, what I want you to notice is that the Israelites were more concerned about keeping the livestock for themselves over what God had commanded them to do. They made this excuse that they were going to go and they were going to um, devote these things to the Lord. They were going to sacrifice them. They only kept the, the, the things that were unblemished and everything else they devoted to destruction. Now, I'd like to believe them, but they, they've been very inconsistent, right? They, they've been very selfish. It's hard to believe that all the animals and all the spoil that they got from the uh, Amalekites that they were going to use to devote to the Lord. And I, I think the Lord, I, I know the Lord saw through that. But I can't help but to recognize how this sin is like the sin of Adam and Eve. Uh, comparing them together, Eve ate of the fruit so that she could be like God. Right? She ate of the fruit so she could be like God. Think about this. She had all the blessings of God, yet her idolatrous heart wanted more. And Adam did nothing about it. He ate along with her. So how is this sin also like our own? Right? What, what Saul did in, in taking all the, the good livestock for himself and, and the people, they took the livestock for themselves, even though they were blessed tremendously and they were told to, to devote that to destruction. Uh, how is that sin like our own? God has given you so many blessings, right? If you were to sit down and think about it, you can think of all the blessings God has given you. He's given you the blessing of a family, of, of a house, of a home, of, of clothes, of, of love, friendships, a church. Hey, we can go on and on and on and name all these different blessings that the Lord has given you, yet your heart is not satisfied. You want more. Let me ask the question, is your heart ever satisfied? Right? Have you become more concerned about your own happiness rather than obeying the Lord and his commandments? Because that's exactly what we're looking at here. Same thing with Adam and Eve. They, they had it better than any of us did, and yet their hearts were not satisfied. They became more concerned about their own happiness and their own fulfillment than obeying the Lord. Here, in this situation, Saul and the people and we've talked about how God had built their, their army up. They were a powerful nation. Saul was, he came, he was a king, right, over all the people. The first king should have been completely happy with everything he had, and he should have just obeyed the Lord, but yet he did not. Heart, our hearts are never satisfied. That's why we always have to keep them in check. The writer describes God's displeasure, and in verse 10 it says that the Lord regretted making king uh, making Saul king over the nation of Israel. Now, as we understand this, this is personification where 
the writer has to help us to understand God's actions here. This is not a regret where God made a mistake and therefore is taking the mistake back or anything like that. Uh, this is just God t- ch- taking a change of course of what he already had determined and had already planned. Uh, but he's, he's making it known to those who are reading. God is changing course. He is, he is rejecting Saul and then he is also going out to seek another king. The, nations, uh, the nation had sinned against God and against his commandments. And the sin of the people angered even Samuel. As God told Samuel what had happened, Samuel cried out to the Lord all night, it says in verse 11. And then Samuel obeys the Lord and he goes and confronts Saul. And when he confronts Saul, let's look at Saul's reluctance to confess, repent, and obey the Lord. And I guarantee as we look at this, we're going to see ourselves in this too. Uh, The next morning, Samuel goes to Saul to deliver the judgment of the Lord. And I want you to notice Saul's response. First thing, Saul did not acknowledge that he had sinned against the Lord. This is not the first time he's done this. When when he went and he was going to fight the Philistines, he did the same thing. He didn't realize or didn't acknowledge that he had sinned against the Lord. In fact, in this particular case, Saul was so proud of himself for going and destroying the Amalekites, I don't know if you caught it or not, but he erected a monument for himself to commemorate the victory. Typically, typically kings would, would erect a monument for the Lord. Saul says, no, this is my victory. I'm going to erect a monument for me. And when he saw Saul, he said this, or when he saw Samuel, he said, bless you to the Lord, or blessed be you to the Lord. This is, and then he said in verse 13, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He saw Samuel working, walking towards him. He's like, oh, Samuel's going to be proud of me. I did exactly what the Lord told me to do. He's about to give me an attaboy. So he didn't even acknowledge his sin. Second, Samuel, when Samuel exposed Saul's sin, Saul made up an excuse to validate it. How many times do we do that? When Samuel exposed his sin, this is what Saul says. The people spared the best of the sheep. And the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. I emphasize the people. He didn't say, hey, we did this. All of a sudden there was a separation. No, the people, the people did that. I'm not going to take any responsibility over that. Even though I'm their king, the people did that, and they did that for this good reason. Then Samuel dismissed that excuse and reminded Saul of the commandment of the Lord. Look at verses 17 through 18. This is what he tells Samuel, or this is what he tells Saul. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribe of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go to devo- go, um, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. When did you not... When then did you, or yeah, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? That's, that was uh, Samuel's words to Saul uh, whenever he saw them or whenever he saw him. In response to that, Saul, he puts blame uh, for his sin on the people again. Look at verses 20 to 21. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of the Amalekite, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. 
But the people took of the spoil of sheep and oxen and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. That was his response. Another excuse. And even after Saul finally confesses his sin, and I think he just does this to appease Samuel, he comes up with one more excuse. Look at verse 24. Sounds like he's come into his senses and he says, I have sinned. I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. It should have been a period right there, right? Or maybe an exclamation mark. It, that's, that's it. I have sinned and I have transgressed the commandments of the Lord. Done. No, but he keeps on. Because you ever have somebody ask for your forgiveness and then they say, I did this. And then they say, because, and you start rolling your eyes because you know something, an excuse is coming. He says, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. This is finally it. That goes along with his confession. That's not a confession. That, that's not repentance. That's another excuse that is being made. He's taking blame off of himself and he's saying, no, you don't understand, Samuel. If I would have done, if I would have kept them from taking the animals, they would have hurt me or they wouldn't have liked me or they would have rejected me as king. See, Saul is the king and yet the eternal king of glory would not let him get away with even one sin. Not one sin. That's how God deals with his people. We don't get away with one sin. The Lord said to Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, you have all, he has also rejected you from being king. See, Saul here afterwards attempts to convince the Lord to relent on his judgment. But the Lord refuses. Look what he says in verse 27 through 29. Uh, this is where Samuel turns away to go away and Saul sees the skirt of his robe and it tore and Samuel said to him the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you didn't matter what Saul wanted or thought he deserved or didn't deserve God had made his judgment the eternal king of glory and his judgments are eternal and they are permanent. And there's nothing that Saul could have done about it. So that gives us context as to what's going on here in this story. But what's the biblical truth that we, that we grab out of this? Well, God commands our obedience. That's the biblical truth here. He commands our obedience. See, there are some things that we should consider about the holiness of God from this passage. Number one, God is pleased when we are obedient to him above everything else. God is pleased when we are obedient to him above everything else. This is what the Lord uh, says through Samuel to Saul. Verse 22, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. I think that's extremely important for us to look at and to learn from. See, the Israelites, the people there, their intent was to take the best of the Amalekite animals and to sacrifice them to the Lord. 
that was what they said it, so let's just go with that. Sometimes you just have to go with what somebody says and then you work on that until you get to the real issue, right? Until you expose the sin. The problem here is that they disobeyed the direct word of God to offer sacrifices they thought would please him. So God says, this is what I want you to do. They get there and they're like, well, we're not going to do exactly what God says. We're going to do this, but yet God's going to be pleased with that because we have a better idea than God. Right? Basically, that's the way it is. When I was younger, I would sometimes be picked by my dad to be his assistant. Right? He's working on things. So say he's working on a car. I'm going to be his assistant. Now, this is something that we didn't volunteer for. We were voluntold to do, right? So we're playing around the area. If you get caught by my dad, he says, hey, you need to come and help me. So usually being his assistant was holding the flashlight. I think every little boy in here knows how that goes, holding that flashlight for your dad. But holding the flashlight and also going and getting uh, tools, being a, a retriever of the tools. That was my job whenever I helped him. Whatever tool he needed, he would tell me, and I would, I would hurry, go get it, come back, and give it to him. Now, I quickly learned what each tool was called, right? Because as a boy, I mean, you're worried about playing, and then all of a sudden, you know, your dad's telling you, go get me a Christian ranch, and you're, you, you have no idea what that is. And so you grab a tool, you take it back to him, and you find out very quickly that that's not a Christian ranch, that, that's, that's a screwdriver or whatever it is, right? Because he's in a hurry, uh, he's, he's trying to get something fixed, and you are bringing him the wrong tools. So he was not happy with me if he told me to go get a wrench and I brought back a screwdriver, right? And on occasion, that would happen until I learned what the tools were. Now, think about this. I may have helped my, my dad gladly. You know, it was kind of cool to help, to see him work on things and fix things and feel like I was doing something for him. I did appreciate that. That was really cool to do. I may have obeyed him instantly. He told me, go get this. I may have ran and, and, and straight over there to go get it, not mess around, not get distracted by my friends or anything like that. And I may have did my task quickly, may win and go and got the tool, grabbed it and run back as fast as I could to him. But in the end, it was, it was for naught because if I didn't bring the exact tool he needed, he couldn't use it or he didn't have use for it. It's not what he requested of me. See, it didn't matter if, if it was the tool I thought he needed. That was beside the point. Because he could have told me I need a Phillips, and I went and got him a flathead, thinking, oh, I think maybe a flathead is, is a little bit better than a Phillips, Phillips in this situation. Whatever it is. Doesn't matter what I thought he needed. It wasn't what he had asked for, and he had no use for it. That's kind of what's going on here in this situation. God tells Saul, through Samuel, he tells Saul and the Israelites, go and destroy the Amalekites. And they go and they almost, they do like 90% of it. But the 10% they, they, they don't do, God is angry about that. And he had every right to be angry about it. See, when we do not fully obey, then we fully sin. There's no, oh, I almost sinned, or I just sinned a little bit. It, it's either we sin or we don't, right? And, and God calls us to repentance for each and every sin. And we do not get away with it. Their sin was that they were worshiping him the way they saw fit and not the way he commanded them to. They're like, yeah, God, God really didn't mean for us to kill all the animals. I think he'd be happier if we offer them 
as sacrifices to the Lord. But if they think like I think, my heart would have been thinking, well, we're going to offer some of these as sacrifices to the Lord, and then we're going to keep some for ourselves, right? We can use some more livestock. We could sell it. We can eat it. There's a lot of things that we can do with it. Oh, but for sure, we're going to make sure that, you know, let's say 10% of these livestock go to the Lord. See, obedience pleases the Lord. In fact, Jesus said in the New Testament, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The other thing that we learn here is that God does not allow excuses for disobedience. Several times Saul tried to excuse his sinful behavior. And his ultimate excuse was that he feared the people and he obeyed their voice. Well, in essence, he rejected the voice of the Lord for the voice of the people. And in response, Saul was rejected by God. See, that's the problem. That was Saul's problem. He was a king after the heart of the people and the Lord would replace him with a king after his own heart. Saul wanted to be accepted by the people. God wanted someone to follow him who wanted to be accepted by him, who feared the Lord and not the people. See, God does not allow for excuses. His word is final and we either obey it or we don't. We might validate things in our mind, like we might tell ourselves as we're sinning, we might say, well, God would want me to be happy. He would want me to be happy. That's what he cares about, my happiness. If I'm not happy, then God's not happy. We may think of something like that, or uh, we, we may think that, hey, this is just a little sin. God's going to be okay with it because this is not a big deal. It's only going to affect me and nobody else. So we go through in our minds and we try to validate uh, sin and we try to validate why we're not following God's commands. But unless our actions conform to the word of God, we will be wrong in our actions. Thirdly, we also learn that God disciplines everyone who disobeys. In verses one through nine, the Lord sets out to destroy the Amalekites because of how they treated the Israelites. It's clear they were the enemies. And God was protecting his people from them. But in verses 10 through 35, we see how the Lord disciplines his own people. And Saul, this is not the first time he made a mistake. This is a continual disobedience. And because of that continual disobedience, he is rejected as king. Verse 26, for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Now, I think we need to think about this. See, because what we're seeing here is we're seeing the discipline of the Lord over the life of King Saul. And it was heavy. This discipline was heavy. The kingdom that God had given him would be torn from him. That's the word that is used. It would be torn from him. Think about, think about that, for something to be torn away. See, for something to be torn away is a painful process. The definition to tear is to pull or rip something apart or to rip it to pieces with force. I think that word was used purposely. The Lord was going to tear that kingdom from Saul. He was going to tear his life apart. And sometimes we think, 
oh, if I just do this sin, I mean, you know, the Lord loves me. He's going to discipline me in his love. It's not going to be painful. Oh, my goodness, if that's you, let me pray for you. The discipline of the Lord is not pleasant. You should fear the discipline of the Lord. See, the purpose is for it to bring it back, bring you back to him, but that doesn't mean it's going to be pleasant. When something is torn, it suffers damage. Hebrews 12, 11 says this, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You catch that? It is painful rather than pleasant. Let me ask you something this morning, and I really want you to think about this, each and every single one of you. What blessing has been torn from you? Or what blessing is being torn from your life right now because of disobedience? You have been more worried about your own happiness than obeying God. You're more worried about what people think of you than what God knows about you. You're more concerned about pleasing the people of the world than you are obeying and following and pleasing God. We suffer loss. It hurts. We go through a lot of things in life. And we're sitting there and we're asking, why in the world is this happening? And we we never think to look at ourselves. We never think to say, I have sinned against God because we have all these different excuses in our head of why we're doing what we're doing. And yet it's sin against the Lord. And we think, man, this thing, this bad thing is happening to me. I don't deserve it. And yet if we were to see our sin, we would come to the conclusion that we deserve that and a whole lot more. But God in his mercy and grace helps us in our times of need. But let me seriously ask you, what blessing has been torn from your life because of disobedience? Now, the wonderful thing about that is that God has a purpose for tearing that away from you. It's so that you can come back to him and serve him. So that you can be sanctified, so that you can be strengthened. So that you can stop your idolatry. and You can worship him. So it is true, God requires obedience over everything else. But how can we apply this passage? What can we learn from it? Well, we can learn that God is a consuming fire. And let me explain that. Hebrews 12, verses 28 through 29. This is what it says about the holiness of God. It says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. See, Hebrews 12, 29 is a quotation from Deuteronomy 4, 24, and it describes the purity of God's holiness. Verse 28 of Hebrews chapter 12 addresses how we are to interact with a holy God. I don't know if you heard that, but I'll read that part again. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You see, we as God's people, since God requires obedience and he does not let 
sin go by. He does not allow excuses for it. We are to offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe. I love this picture of consuming fire that we get from God's word. It's, it's a fire that cannot be quenched. If you ever have ever witnessed a fire, a fire of a house, a fire of a structure, a fire of anything, you see how the fire just consumes it. But yet any fire that we start here on earth, it could be quenched. But the Bible says God is a consuming fire. He, he cannot be quenched. There is no one greater than he. When you get close to a fire, you can't really get that close, actually, especially if it's a big enough one. Just standing far enough away, it feels like your skin's going to melt off if it's a big enough fire. I remember when we first built our house, there was a lot of clearing I had to do of the trees around, around the house. The, the house was going up. I was clearing out the trees as we went on. Uh, Brother David, Pastor David... Uh, Pastor Laramie and a few others went out to help me from time to time clear this fire. And so the easy thing about cutting down trees, or not clear the fire, but clear the, the trees. The, the thing about trees is cutting them down is really, really easy. Because right? you have a chainsaw and you're just going to town and they're dropping to the floor. Now grabbing all the, all the, the limbs and dragging them and piling them up, that's, that's the hard part. Now the fun part is whenever you get to light that on fire. One thing about me, if you hang out with me enough, you'll learn that I love to put things on fire. Legally. Legally, though. Legally. I, I love burning campfires. I love barbecuing. I, love, I just love that. But in our property, we had, we had cut down so many trees, we had made a huge, huge pile. That pile had sat there for a while. House was done. We moved in. I should have burned that pile a long time ago. But I waited and waited and waited. So I, when I went to go burn it, I got the diesel, got the rag, soaked, soaked it in diesel, put diesel all on the wood. Please, if you ever do a fire, use diesel and not gasoline. Just, just please make sure you use diesel and not gasoline. But soaked it all, lit it on fire, and right away I thought, this is a big fire. And the first thing I thought was I had this newly painted house behind me, and I thought, I hope that's really good paint because it, it, it could be hot enough that where it starts to peel, and then I have to go and explain that to my wife that our new house was burned by the fire that I started. But starting this fire, you, you, it's, it's, it's very intimidating. You, the heat, it starts to push you away. You, you, just, you just gain a, a, an immediate respect for it. When you're closer to the fire, it's different than being a lot further away. When you're a lot further away, it's just a light. When you're closer, you feel the heat, you see the light, you feel the power. And I think that's the way it is for us as God's people. He is a consuming fire. And he does not let any of our sins go by. The heat that the Lord puts off, it, 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 it pierces the body. It pierces the joints. It goes through the bone. It cuts right to the heart. And if there's any sin in us, our hearts burn. Because the Lord has exposed that. And he commands that we turn from our sin and worship him.
Charles Spurgeon says this, if I hate sin because of the punishment, I have not repented of my sin. I merely regret that God is just. I think a lot of us are doing that right now. We're, we're in this cycle of life that we continue to just and get into the sin, get out of it, get into the sin, get out of it. And we really haven't repented. The only reason why we don't do that sin is because of the consequences or what we suffered because of it. And we're angry with God that we continually have to suffer through this. And yet we have not held ourselves accountable. We have not looked straight in God's word and says, yeah, it's, it's my fault, period. There, there's nothing that comes after that. I have sinned against your word, Lord. Please forgive me. See, the appropriate response to God in all circumstances is for us to obey his word. When we don't obey he is the good father that disciplines us so that we can learn and come back to him. We must never think that we are, that we are anyone else gets away with sin. What chapter 15 uh, shows us here is that God is holy and vengeance is his. And the Lord himself says, I will repay. If you are in Christ, know this. And this is the beautiful news of the gospel. You are forgiven of your sins. Thank God that we won't have to pay for all of our sins. But you are also commanded to walk in obedience to his word. This requires for us to live a life of faith and repentance. See, our prayer should be that, that we decrease and that he increase in us. And whatever sin that you're struggling with right now, don't make any excuses or stop making excuses for it. We can't hide it from God. We're not fooling God. He's a consuming fire. He sees right through our excuses. The best thing that we can do is say, I have sinned before you, Lord. Please forgive me and help me to serve you better. Let's pray.